Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood, to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Listen, my good friends, as I tell you the true story of the wreck of old 97. Now, I suppose the best place to start out with this one is back at the beginning. It all started when 
they decided to build a railway system that would require the construction crews to tame the Appalachian Mountains. At least part of them, anyway. By they, I suppose I mean the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, as they are the first that I could find that wished to attempt to construct railways through the and over and around these great mountains. Most of the destruction was done by blasting down into the rock in order to reach a firm level bed on which to set the track. First, the men known as steel driving men would drive blasting holes into the rock using sledgehammers and hand bits that were held in place by their trusting partner, often called a shaker. This because every blow delivered by the steel driving men, the shaker would have to move and reposition the bit during the time it took the steel driver to lift the hammer and prepare to deliver another thunderous blow to the top of the bit. And when I say trusting partner, <laughs> I mean it. The shaker had to completely trust the steel driver to deliver a hard, accurate blow directly on top of the bit. In order for him to do that, the bit had to be repositioned, set, and remain perfectly still all before the steel driver would start down with his next blow. Only a complete trust of a steel driving man's accuracy would allow the shaker to remain steady and unflinching as the hammer came down. Then, once the holes were drilled, in would come a man with ice water in his veins called the blaster. It seems that as I look into the recorded history of these blasters, I find that more often than not, they seem to be represented much like a kicker is on a football team. Kind of a loner in the pack with some sort of power to make or break a situation at any given moment. In this instance, that power would be dynamite or nitroglycerin. The blaster would come and load the holes with the proper amounts of explosive, wire it all up with blasting caps, and hoping that a static charge wouldn't set it off in his hands. Then the blast was discharged to instantly break up the rocks so that it could be removed and hauled off. Many accidents happened during railroad construction that resulted in broken bones, amputation of limbs, or even death as a result of flinching shakers, steel driving miscues, or an overconfident blaster. These were among other daily threats to a man's life such as a rattlesnake or copperhead bite, just to name one. Finally, in the 1830s, the B&O had tamed part of the mountains and had their Trans-Appalachian Line, which served New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and even ran into parts of Kentucky and Ohio. Of course, this spurned other railways to follow suit, and many railways followed the B&O's example by taming their own part of the mountains as well. By June 18, 1894, the Richmond and Danville Railroad Company, which was one of those railroads, went broke due to mismanagement and was sold in foreclosure. Its property was sold to the Southern Railway Company for operation on July 1st, 1894, even though the deeds of conveyance weren't completed and filed until later. The company was reorganized by J.P. Morgan and his New York banking firm called Drexel Morgan and Company. The old R&D line, as it was known, 
was merged with five other railroads to form the new Southern Railway. The R&D property was formally conveyed to Southern Railway by deeds dated January 9, 1896 and August 30, 1897. The Southern Railway, incorporated in Virginia back in the day of June 18, 1894, though, and controlled over 4,000 miles of track at its start. This included most of the track that wormed through the Appalachian Mountains. The Southern Railway is still in operation to this day and is now called Norfolk Southern. At the same time all of this was going on, the U.S. Postal Service was addressing its concerns about transporting mail in a timely manner to its customers. The great rise in complaints about the lack of speedy mail service ran rampant among the citizens of this country. This, in turn, spurned several acts by Congress to attempt to streamline the mail service and make it more efficient. Being that the railroad had by this time become a coast-to-coast means of transport and travel, the most logical answer seemed to lie in the use of custom train cars to transport the mail more efficiently. Custom train cars were built in the tradition of the U.S. post offices and were pretty much post offices on wheels that would come to your town and deliver the mail straight to you as you came to check with the postmaster who worked in the train. However, attempts to use the railroad service to transport mail had fallen short of expectations because the railway company adhered to their own schedules and were not any way responsible to the U.S. Postal Service for the speed of the mail deliveries. The reality was that they loaded the train cars and left when they saw fit, and if the mail service wanted to use their transport trains to carry the mail, then they'd be glad to do it, but it would be on their time, not the Postal Service's time. That was until about 1896 when the U.S. Postal Service started the implementation of what would be called fast mail. Being that the railways would be paid for delivering the mail by whatever time they fancied them, then Postal Service began issuing contracts that would penalize railways a significant amount for every minute that the mail was late. This was done in an attempt to get some kind of handle on the time constraints set for mail delivery. Now, as with most everything that the government does, this too had some unattended consequences. In order to not be fined, the train engineers began taking greater chances on the rails, which in turn caused the number of railway accidents to increase. It was 1902 when the Southern Railway won a $140,000 annual contract with the Postal Service for the delivery of mail in a timely fashion. That's a contract worth $4,384,000 in today's money. And as we said, with it came greater pressure to get the mail there on time. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. I'm Larry Bentley. On September 27, 1903, the fast mail was delayed leaving Washington Station as it headed toward Atlanta. 
After further delays in Fredericksburg, the train was more than an hour behind schedule as it neared the central town of Virginia called Monroe. At Monroe, a new train crew boarded the late train and prepared to make up time on the road. While engineer Joseph A. Brody and two firemen worked up steam on the engine, about a dozen postal clerks continued sorting mail in the postal cars as conductor John T. Blair of Spencer, North Carolina, made final preparations to depart. The engineer, Steve Brody, for some reason beyond what I can find in history, was called Steve. Steve was born April 1, 1870 in Clinchburg, Virginia, and had worked as an engineer for several railroad companies, though he was a fairly new engineer with the Southern Railway Company. Steve had been asked to work the route that day as the original engineer, Thomas Kreitzer, was a native who was a native of Spencer, North Carolina, was caught up in a scheduling conflict with another train he was driving to time. That left Steve to take a engine number 1102, known as Old 97, down the Whiting Appalachian Mountain track on which he had little experience. Before Brody boarded the old 97 to depart, the dispatcher told him that he needed to get back on schedule by the time he reached Spencer, North Carolina, about 166 miles away. To do that, Steve would need to get the engine running at least 50 miles an hour for the length of the entire run. It was 12 miles an hour faster than the trains normally ran through the winding, rolling edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Steve was also told to maintain his speed through Franklin Junction, Virginia, which was normally a water station stop at the line. It was fast becoming a recipe for disaster. To counteract uh, some of the worst parts of the terrain, the railway had built a series of trestles that connected track grades along the sides of the steep hills and valleys of the mountain. One of these trestles was the 45-foot-tall Stellhouse Trestle near Danville, Virginia. The Stellhouse Trestle crossed a muddy river at the bottom of a ravine known as Stellhouse Branch. The trestle was more than 5% downgrade along its length and curved sharply in its northern approach. This was contrary to the construction of the railroad, which normally stuck to grades of a maximum of 2% and kept them on a straight trajectory throughout the grade. All seemed to be going according to plan as Steve took old 97 along the tracks bypassing Franklin Station and continuing toward Spencer. Witnesses near Steelhouse Trestle heard the whistle sounding as the engine 1102 approached and thought it odd that the train would be signaling for a trestle crossing. Most of these witnesses said that the train appeared to be traveling at about 50 to 55 miles an hour as it approached the trestle. Later, calculations made by the accident investigators confirmed that they were right as they put the speed at 52 miles an hour as old 97 reached the trestle and the entire train plunged over the north end. Witnesses stated that the scene was eerie as the only the sound could be heard was once the steam died down and the engine was cool enough to approach it was canaries singing in the trees. The canaries had been traveling on board the train and when it 
crashed, their cage busted open, and they flew into the trees surrounding the scene. The engineer, the fireman, the conductor, the flagman, and several of the mail clerks were killed. Seven survivors in the rear of the train were seriously injured. The Southern Railway blamed Steve Brody for the wreck, for failing to heed grade warnings and speed restriction signs. They did this even though witnesses testified that the engineer was acting on orders of the Southern Dispatcher. Fortunately, well, for the I guess for the Southern Railway, that is, the federal government kept the fast mail contract with the railroad and only fined the company for delays in the mail lost in the ravine. It was a popular thought among many experienced engineers that the engine lost its air brakes and the train whistle was being sounded in an attempt to get the brakeman to apply the emergency brake in hopes of slowing the train down. Unbelievably, the Baldwin engine number 1102 was salvaged from the wreck by the Spencer station. When it arrived at the station for repairs, the mechanic stated that it was literally wrapped in the red mud of Danville. They repaired it at the Spencer shop and it continued in service until 1935. The wreck itself received quite a bit of local newspaper and magazine coverage due to some of the gory details of the train's crew's fate. Engineer Steve Brody's body was found seared by the pressurized steam from the boiler. His one hand grasping the throttle and the other was wrapped around the whistle's lanyard. Southern Railway President Sam Spencer had saved the contract with the U.S. Postal Service at the cost of the reputation of the now-deceased Steve Brody, but these Appalachians have a way of bringing on mountain karma. In 1906, while on a hunting trip near Lynchburg, Virginia, Sam decided to sleep in his car. He didn't realize that he had parked on a train track. The train, which was oddly enough running right on schedule, completely crushed the car and Sam, too, killing him instantly. These types of accidents were all too common back in the time, and nothing especially stood out about this one that actually separated it from many of the others. In fact, passenger engine number 38 had crashed scarcely six months earlier when it rear-ended a much slower freight train on the same line closer to Lynchburg, Virginia. The engineer Charles Kenny had saw the impending crash and managed to reverse the wheels of the engine in an attempt to slow or maybe even stop the collision. He and his fireman then jumped from the train and the postal car behind the engine derailed and immediately landed on top of him, crushing him to death, while his fireman rolled just barely out of reach of the falling car. The freight train that they collided with happened to be bringing Baldwin engine number 1102 to Spencer for delivery to run the old 97 route. What set this crash apart from others was that it happened in what was known as, at the time as the heart of mountain music. Some writers immediately wrote ballads about the loss of the fast mail train. Rather than using the train's name, they wrote about the mail run by referencing Southern Railway's fast mail route number 97. Songwriters G.B. Grayson and Henry Witter wrote Wreck of Old 97, 
The song was picked up in 1924 and recorded by Vernon Dalhart of New York, who was pretty well known as a pop musician. Vernon Dalhart has the distinction of being the most recorded musician in history, and when he recorded The Wreck of Old 97, it became the first million seller in the recording industry's history. In fact, the record was so popular that it prompted Steve's widow to write a response to the final verse which appeared in the paper. She said, I never did speak harsh words to my husband. And that, my friends, is what set the wreck of old 97 apart from the others. If you've never heard the song, I would suggest that you look it up on YouTube and give it a listen. I prefer Johnny Cash's version myself, but that's just me. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder, mystery, or legend. And I'll see you then. I'm Larry Bentley.